Hey everyone, it's Daisha. You're about to hear a conversation I had with Rachel Barton Pine, who is both a famed violinist and basically the mascot of Classical Classroom. We talked all about the music of Dvorak and Kachatorian, both composers who were inspired by folk music. And I kind of realized when we were talking that I hadn't spent a lot of time thinking about the term folk music and like what that means. Folk music as opposed to, you know, whatever you call the other kinds of music. But uh, Rachel and I got into that in this episode. It's pretty interesting. And we also talk about the lives of Dvorak and Kachatorian. And there's this story that she tells about Dvorak getting lost in the New York subway that just kind of made me want to give him a hug. It reminded me of how hard it is to be a stranger in a strange land, even if you're a super famous composer like where you came from. Anyway, I don't want to spoil any more for you, so I'll just remind you to subscribe to, uh, rate, and review the show wherever you listen to us, and also remind you that you can support the podcast with your dollars at classicalclassroomshow.com. Also, if you are a supporter of the show, I'm going to sing you a little song at the end of this episode. Finally, I'm stoked to say that this episode is brought to you by the good people at Encoda. Okay, let's go. There's a rumor going around that classical music can be hoity-toity. But here in the classical classroom, we beg to differ. Beethoven 5. <laughs> the idea that classical music is a zone where we have to feel restricted or we have to act in a certain way, you know, that's not going to be helpful going forward. <laughs> Isaiah is shaking with excitement oh, here. I mean, there's just so many great parts of the opera. He asked me to play his favorite spot in the first moon of the Brahms. And then he said, I started using those licks in my guitar solos. How to be classical music rock stars because there's not enough of that in this business. Occasionally I would plug in the mandolin to my distortion pedals. <laughs> I don't change my voice. And talking to classical I, music. <laughs> I'm playing classical music now. I mean, it's, yeah. it's the same 12 notes. That's what's so cool about it. I'm Daisha Clay, a classical music newbie, and I'm trying to learn all I can about the music. Come learn with me and the classical music experts I invite into the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and welcoming back once again to The Classroom, one of our very favorite humans, violinist Rachel Barton Pine. Rachel has performed with basically every major orchestra out there, has won, you know, all of the awards, and is a general badass. Last time she was on this show, we talked about her Music by Black Composers project and her album, Blues Dialogues. Rachel's recorded a whopping 39 albums, and her latest is the music of Dvorak and Kachatorian, which I'm hoping she will teach me about today. Rachel, welcome back to the show. Always a pleasure to be here, Daisha. <laughs> yeah, so you know what? We don't have a whole lot of time, unfortunately. I feel like it's always you know, the case because uh, you're so busy, but let's start with when did Dvorak live? When did Kachatorian live? Oh, well, luckily I have my phone here if you want me to Google the exact <laughs> dates. But, but Dvorak lived in the 19th century and Kachaturian okay. in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So I just wanted to contextualize them, you know, like, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Dvorak was one of the great, you know, romantic composers from the 
um, you know, mid-19th century. Uh, we know and love him in America because he actually came over to this side of the ocean to kind of, mm. well, basically help out our classical music scene um, through teaching. And, and then when he was here, he was very inspired by the music that he heard of Native Americans and African Americans and wrote his American String Quartet and his Ninth Symphony from the New World and um, and really, you know, encouraged a lot of African-American classical composers and um, helped them get up and running. And so he was really a very influential figure. But before he came over and became um, such an, um, you know, American hero, he was mm-hmm. uh, from Czechoslovakia and inspired by his own homegrown music, um, the, the folk music of Czechoslovakia. And there are a couple of kinds of dances, the Furiant and the Dumka, that appear in many of his works. And in fact, you'll notice a lot of his chamber music being named after the Dumka, like the Dumki Trio or the Dumka Piano Quintet or whatever. What is, yeah, um, what is that? What is what is furiant? I saw that word and I was like, that's a cool word. What yeah, it, right? What does it mean? <laughs> well, it's just as exuberant as you would imagine it is. It's a very lively you know, joyous sort of dance um, that has an interesting rhythmic structure. Um, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. That's a pretty normal mm-hmm. thing, but then it goes one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, um, which is basically like a bigger three. One and two and three. And so one, two, three, 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 one, two, three. and kind of mixing up the little three and the big three and in various types of patterns. And that's what gives it its, its particular flavor. The Dumka is a whole different ballgame. It's it's a very um, melancholy type of sound, and it's in mm. two. So there's um, a melody in the the last movement, um, the middle of the last movement of the violin concerto. The last, um, you know, where it's like. You know, it has this mm-hmm. tinge of sadness that you'll always uh, hear when you hear a dumka. Um, but then Dvorak does something really cool. He takes the dumka and he revisits it at the end of the movement, which of course is the end of the entire concerto, and he transforms it into major key. So it's no longer a dumka, but it's still the same theme, and now it's become this really triumphant flavor. That's that's kind of the, the neat thing that you see composers doing when they take folk music ideas, but then they do things with them that would never be done in traditional music and you know, yeah. break the mold and just, you know, do all of these adventurous types of things that you can do when you're writing concert music. You know, okay, so I'm just going to ask a kind of dumb question, but can you actually, like, describe the difference between folk music and, like, composed or, or concert music, as as you called it? 
Gosh, well, I mean, there's a number of different things that are used. You know, some people say folk music needs to be transmitted orally. You know, you learn it by ear, um, by mm-hmm. sitting around with other folk musicians. And that's there's a lot of truth to that, though not always, because, for example, 18th century Scottish fiddling, they were a very literate society there in the Enlightenment, and they all published collections of folk tunes and learned from the page. But they were, hmm. you know, legit folk music, but they were reading the sheet music. So, um, yeah, there, that's an exception to that proves the rule, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Folk music, often you have tunes that don't have attribution to a particular um, author. They're just, you know, lost in the mist of time. Um, but then mm-hmm. again, you certainly have plenty of folk music tunes that where you do know who wrote it, um, especially, of course, yeah. more recent ones. Actually, I had a wonderful description by my daughter's American fiddling teacher, and he mm-hmm. t- doesn't talk about folk music. He talks about social music. And so that's an I- interesting way to think about it is what is the context in which the music is going to be played? Are you going to be jamming with a bunch of friends, some of them professionals, some of them amateur, yeah. maybe a kid, maybe a senior? You're all just kind of jamming together, sitting in the corner of a pub, having fun. Maybe you're playing for some dancers. Or are you going to be on stage all dressed up and there's an audience? So the context yeah. is just as important as the content. Hint. And it really just comes down to that old saying, I can't explain it, but I know it when I see it, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, well, like, I was thinking about these terms, and I was thinking, like, I, I know that in classical music, there's sort of this concept of virtuosity, where there's this really high bar set for for performance, um, for, for structure and in composition for just the, the whole thing there's sort of a um that's sort of the mark of classical music well, so i kind of hear what you're 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 saying about folk music is that it's maybe a little bit more relaxed but there are obviously people yeah. who play folk music who are really freaking good at it yeah and that's actually a great point so definitely classical goes farther than anything in terms of the the technical demands, the athletic virtuosic demands. Um, I Mm. like to say it's like you have all these, you know, America's Got Talent and all these things now where there are people playing instruments and it's like, okay, what's the difference between, you know, a a quasi-amateur and then what somebody like me does? And it's like, you know, if you go and you watch Olympic gymnastics, Mm. right? Simone Biles or one of these people just doing these impossible twists and turns and flips and all of that. It's like that versus somebody doing a cartwheel. Now, Uh a lot of us can do a cartwheel and some of us can do a cartwheel with pizzazz, but it's still not (laughs) Olympic gymnastics. And so, um, yeah, now that's not to, you know, denigrate anybody. And there are lots of people who can't even do a cartwheel. So doing a cartwheel. That would be me. I cannot um, do a cartwheel. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, there are a lot of high-end classical musicians who, you know, have chops up the wazoo, but can't sit down and play a simple fiddle tune because it's just such a different language that they're not used to those, those sort of patterns of bowings and things like that. So that, that's an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. Like that, that sort of uh, ability to improvise and just sort of jam. Yeah. But yeah, but you can, and, and, you know, certainly you can, you know, you can be 
a grown-up of any age and decide that you've always wanted to play violin and just you know and and make yeah. a commitment to pick it up and start learning it and I love hearing from people who are new violinists of the grown-up variety it's so inspiring and heartwarming yeah. and you can you know get good enough to play in your local orchestra and stuff like that but you know you're never obviously starting that late going to become a, a top professional that's simply not physically possible and you know it's that's a difference with folk music you can actually start an instrument quite late and become professional in the folk music realm depending on kind of what you're doing and there is definitely a higher technical bar but that's not to say that it's that folk music is somehow lesser Um, it's just a different means of human expression that's equally important to our society absolutely well and so like what made Dvorak interested in that and like why why did he bring it into this composed music that he was doing what was the connection there well, it was definitely an era where people were celebrating, you know, their own national music and taking, you know, pride in, you know, making their music not just sound kind of generically European, you know, this sort of Germanic sound that, I mean, Dvorak definitely has an element of of that, um, mm-hmm. you know, standard European type of writing, but then he has his own his own twist on it. Um, it's even more stark in Kachaturian because he mm. grew up in this really vibrant community in the country of Georgia and was surrounded by all kinds of different musics of the Caucasus and didn't even start classical till he was 18. Dvorak, of course, had a much more traditional path. But yeah, I think this was just stuff he loved and wanted to share and celebrate and was inspired. And He's kind of elevating this, this music of, of his homeland in a way by like bringing it into this complex music. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's so important about having classical in our world. You know, there's talk about cultural appropriation and, you know, mm-hmm. who should be allowed to play what or um, right. and, and, it, and certainly the creation of music has has tricky issues in that regard, but as mm-hmm. far as the performance of music, it's actually our joy and responsibility to play all the good music because, you know, the Tchaikovsky concerto shouldn't only be played by people of Russian descent, nor would Tchaikovsky want that. You know, it's a way mm-hmm. for for everyone to get to know everyone else and share music together and have this common language and and make the world a smaller place. So it's wonderful to sort of understand a bit about Czech music and Armenian music and, Mm -hmm. you know, all these different kinds of things from from all over the world and different eras. And it brings people together in in a wonderful way. This episode of Classical Classroom is sponsored by Maestro Classics. They're the creators of Stories and Music, which is this recorded series that they made for kids and families. It's won more than 50 awards, not to mention 
general adoration from the people who listen to it. It features the London Philharmonic Orchestra and it takes those musical stories and it, and it like brings them to life. It's one of those things where kids learn while they're having fun without actually knowing that they're learning. And there's an activity book that goes along with it. It's a whole thing. Maestro Classics just announced a brand new recording in this series called Bach and the Organ. It's all about J.S. Bach, who you may have heard of on this very show, and it tells the story of his life while talking about the pipe organ, which, P.S. back in the day, was the most advanced mechanical instrument that had ever existed. And you can learn more about this album and the rest of the series at maestroclassics.com and wait for it you can also save 17 percent off of your order by using coupon code classroom yay have you heard of encoda no well settle in i have a story to tell you once upon a time musicians used paper sheet music paper was this stuff made out of trees you'd have to go to a sheet music store to buy the sheet music and they only accepted coins as payment. In order to prove that you were worthy of the sheet music, you'd have to perform for the proprietor who would deem your performance worthy or not and decide whether you got the sheet music. But then came the future and the service called Encoda. You just download the app and then kind of like Spotify or Netflix, you pay a monthly subscription fee. And for that fee, you get access to tens of thousands of titles and millions of pages of music. And no more paying in coins and performing for the proprietor. Bonus. Uh, so download your free trial of Encoda. That's N-K-O-D-A from your app store today. And uh, you're welcome. And now back to my lesson with Rachel Barton Pine, where we're now going to learn about the other violin concerto by Cacheturian. Cacheturian? Cacheturian? I don't know. So Cacheturian's concerto was written in 1940. It's not, you know, a challenging, modernistic-sounding piece. That was a, you know, kind of a, a period of time when some music was going in, you know, very avant-garde direction and other mm -hmm. music was, you know, more tonal. But definitely Cacheturian was pushing the envelope, you know, with some of the things he was doing in terms of his orchestration, which is very loud. He... Um, uses lots of um, instruments to evoke the folk music, going, kind of going a step further than what Dvorak did, um, where hmm. Dvorak used melodies and rhythmic patterns, but um, Kachaturian, you know, augments that with actual tonal colors. Um, crashing cymbals, so many crashing cymbals, it's almost like <laughs> too much, but except it's not. It's, it would, you know, it, if it were another composer writing music, you know, to sound, Eastern European, then you would think it's over the top, it's silly, but because it's right. coming from such a place of authenticity, then it's just like, okay, he just went for it. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's great. <laughs> um, and, you know, every time you think, okay, surely that's enough crashing cymbals, then there's some more. <laughs> but, Yet more um, crashing cymbals. Yeah. <laughs> And then he um, does fun things like he uses um, woodwinds with these snaky, you know, lines. It's you know, sort of snake charmer sounding, you know, with all the melismas. It's it's interesting. I, I you know it would be un PC to say that the music is exotic because obviously to somebody who lives in that region it's not exotic. It's normal. You know if you 
grew up in that area and this music was like your normal everyday music that was sort of in the air around you then listening to the Chicago blues would be exotic and for me Chicago blues is like my hometown music but you know Armenian music it sounds pretty exotic to me and it's it's really fun. Yeah, it's really just infused with this this really wonderful flavor. And this was Armenia, um, right? We we kind of you kind of mentioned that earlier, but he was in he was in the Soviet Union, right? Right. So, you okay. know, we a lot of times now we we speak of Soviet composers as Russian composers, but he's not from Russia. Um he's from farther right. east and he grew up in the country of Georgia and mm-hmm. was uh, but he's ethnically Armenian and was surrounded by Georgian music, Armenian music, Azerbaijani music, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, all these different musics of the Caucasus and um and even did some field research, you know, going around to different countries and communities to to gather tunes and stuff like that and just hear people playing stuff. Hmm. But he also had a real drama to his writing. I mean, gosh, it's just I you know, I'd have to use the word epic. Um almost like you know there's this part at the end of the of the second movement that almost sounds like, you know, a tragic movie scene like the the climactic moment. Interesting that you know he has moments of, of yearning and um, you know not not full fledged angst, not like some of the composers whose music is struggling, but you know definitely moments of sadness and things, yeah. and then also of course lots and lots of absolute joy. And but he he left us um, a record about his state of mind when he was composing this mm. piece, and it's so wonderful, it's just so touching. He was, says he was awaiting the birth of his first child, and he was in a state of joy, and that the creative flow was just like he was, like the music was just pouring out of him, like almost faster than he could get it down on the page. And it was like he was wow. creating this piece while his wife was creating their, their kid, and he was oh just gosh. like so happy and so filled with anticipation. And so he, he like turned this piece around in three months and um, you know as opposed to Dvorak who struggled with revision after revision for years trying to get his concerto right so it's yeah yeah, I just love that hearing about that process because so often we do hear about composers who are you know filled with angst and struggle Mm -hmm. and you know and here's Katatrian like yay I'm writing a concerto life is great (laughs) (laughs) but you said it sounds like there's there's angst in his music it's just not well I think it would be boring to write an entire 40 minute piece that's happy 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 you know what I mean you have to tell some kind of a story you have to take us on a journey it's like being an author writing a good plot you have to have you know these emotions that 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 have some kind of a um, a structure to them and take you through on a real adventure yeah and I mean becoming a new parent I think is is 
I haven't had the experience, but I'm from what I, I have heard from people, it's it's kind of a, an emotionally fraught thing because, of course, it's this big, wonderful thing that's happening, but it's also your life is changing. And yeah, it's transformative yeah. and your equal yeah. parts scared and excited. And yeah, yeah, it's a big, big life moment. <laughs> and um, yeah, of course, it hadn't quite happened yet. He was, you know, they were only expecting when he wrote yeah. this concerto. But yeah, I almost think back to my, uh, my lullabies record that I made right mm-hmm. after my daughter was born. And, you know, all of those little pieces that were often inspired by the composer's experience um, with childhood, you know, after their babies had come. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. it's, it's neat to think about how how these works that the composers left for us, you know, fit into their own life story. Right. Well, so so you've got Kachatorian who's, you know, about to have a baby and the, the, the music is just like pouring out of him. He's excited, ebullient about life. And then you've got Dvorak, who you just kind of briefly mentioned this, like he's having this struggle with the piece. Why, why by the way, was Dvorak having a struggle? with writing the piece? Well, it was mostly due to Joseph Joachim, his violinist mm. um, collaborator. So jo- Joachim was the greatest violinist in Europe. He was Brahms's best friend. And he was really an important musician beyond being a great performer. He really helped elevate um, the taste of music in Europe. Before Joachim, people never played the late string quartets of Beethoven. They thought that they were intellectual exercises, but not actually meant to be heard. Can you imagine? Oh, wow. And it was Joachim who, who said, no, no, this stuff is great. You should listen to it. You're going to love it. And of course, it was his profound interpretations that made the case for it. He was the first person to perform the solo music by Bach. Again, before that, people thought they were, you know, maybe study pieces, etudes or something, not actual mm-hmm. concert repertoire. So he he really had great insights into the potential for listeners to to enjoy and embrace, you know, really deep music. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't infallible, and he had a blind spot, which was he was very conservative when it came to formal structure. He wanted to have, you know, an exposition, a development, and a recapitulation. That's that's a way of writing music where you have, you know, the original material, the, the melodies and the thoughts, and then you have a development which plays around with them, and then you have a return to them. That's and, the recapitulation. You're, yeah. you're coming back to that original thought. Okay. Yeah, so to kind yeah. of, like, wrap it up, like the structure of a good essay has a, you know, you lay out your ideas, and then you, you discuss them, and then you, you wrap it up by concluding, by reiterating your ideas, right? Uh-huh. So this is how... So many composers have have you know presented their their music, and mm-hmm. Dvorak was um, a bit more on the cutting edge, as were a number of composers at the time, all of whom Joachim rejected. <laughs> Dvorak <laughs> had written other works that did have the formal structure that Joachim liked, and Joachim loved his chamber music and had performed some of it. So this, so we thought this was going to be a sure thing. You know, Joachim liked the composer, and he he was going to write a concerto for Joachim. Everything should have been, you know, straightforward and and great, but. Dvorak decided to make the first woman of his concerto into much more of a free-flowing stream of consciousness type of, of animal. And so he actually never returns to the original material. And not only that, he doesn't ever really end the first movement. He just kind of melds right into the second movement. Now, this was not the first concerto where the first movement didn't end. I remember the first time you and I talked was the Mendelssohn concerto. And the end of that piece actually transitions and has a little interlude that leads directly into the second movement. But it does at least feel like some kind of finality or conclusion. And then it just has a little 
maybe a little tag, um, you know, that connects it in. But the Dvorak concerto doesn't even do that. It just kind of like winds its way down, and then there you are at the second movement. And um, for Joachim, he just couldn't handle it, and so he actually, <laughs> he actually, literally, we, we now use the term ghosting, right? He ghosted Dvorak. What? He like he tried the piece with piano accompaniment, was kind of like hemming and hawing, and asked for some more revisions. And Dvorak was like, "Okay, is it all, is it fine now? It's been three years. We've been going back and forth. What's going on?" And then Joachim simply, well, it wasn't, it was, it was the equivalent of stopping returning his calls. He just stopped answering his snail mail. He just never wrote. <laughs> to him and finally Dvorak got the clue that Dvor- that Joachim just wasn't going to write to him and had rejected the concerto but hadn't had the guts to say so and then he <laughs> oh. moved on to a young Czech soloist um, Andrzejczyk was his name and Andrzejczyk got it he loved the, the Dvorak concerto maybe being a fellow countryman helped um, or maybe just being younger with a more modern perspective but he performed it all over to great success and the concerto caught on and the public liked it and the critics liked it and clearly Joachim had been wrong but mm-hmm. um, yeah Joachim said it was flawed but what he really m- meant is you know he himself didn't relate to it enough to play it and mm-hmm. was too embarrassed to say so I guess so it's oh my yeah. gosh such a such a sad story and then you think about Kachaturian with his dedicatee David Oistrakh the great mm-hmm. um, Russian soloist Kachaturian wrote his concerto in three months and Oistrakh loved it from the get-go and went out in Plated and everybody was happy and it was just like smooth sailing. <laughs> happy, so. happy, happy, joy, joy. Yes, <laughs> and you've got Dvorak. I hope that Dvorak at least felt some sense of vindication when when other people receive the piece well, you know? Like Yeah, I, well actually there's oh, I have to tell you the the best anecdote. So my violin hero is um, the woman violinist from America named Maud Powell, who lived mm-hmm. from 1867 to 1920, and she was really groundbreaking. She was the first artist to play the Sibelius and Tchaikovsky concertos in the U.S. She was the first white instrumentalist of any instrument to champion the works of black composers. She championed mm-hmm. women composers. She was the Victor Talking Machine Company's first instrumental recording star, and people all across America bought the new fangled phonograph just to listen to Maud Powell's records. Um, she wow. was the first woman who dared to form a string quartet where men and women played in the same ensemble for the very first Ooh. time. Of course, she was the first violinist, which was even more radical, that she was leading the men. Um, so mm-hmm. she was just an amazing person. And Maud Powell was one of the first champions of the Dvorak Concerto, um, actually the first real champion of it here in the U.S. And um, Dvorak was over here. As I said, he was hanging out here for a while. And she decided to play it for him to make sure that, you know, he liked her interpretation and, and so forth. So she went and played it for him. And before she started, he started talking about Joachim. Now, bear in mind that Joachim had actually been Maud Powell's teacher because he was also one of the most important violin teachers in Europe. And mm-hmm. any aspiring American artist couldn't get their finishing training over here in those days because the there weren't good enough universities. You had to go to Europe. So Maud Powell had gone off to Berlin, had studied with Joachim, who then, of course, had this this horrible episode with poor Dvorak. Um, mm-hmm. So before Maud Powell started playing, Dvorak said, you know, 
Joachim told me that no woman could ever do justice to the to my violin concerto. No woman would ever be capable of it. Probably because it's, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, you know, maybe Joachim said that because it's such a strong piece and it needs strength of character and physical stamina and all those things. Which right? no woman could so, possibly have. Yeah. So Maude Powell's like, okay, okay. So she played the piece for Dvorak and Dvorak was delighted. And he very cheekily said, I'm going to write to Joachim right now and tell him that I have found a woman who can play his piece splendidly. I don't think he ever sent that letter, but he was like, you know, he. I could just, just thinking of these two you know, giants of mm-hmm. music history, Maud Powell and Dvorak sitting there going, hmm, well, uh-huh. well we just proved Joachim wrong. Like <laughs> in your face. <laughs> and actually, I studied with a student of a student of Joachim myself in Berlin um, for part of my finishing training. And in my lesson, you know, my teacher would say, you know, my teacher said that Joachim said that Brahms said to play it like this and stuff like that. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, so I really do revere Joachim, but, you know, yeah. everybody's got their, their little blind spots. <laughs> right. Everybody's got their limits. It's it's weird. You you know, these genius people who come along in in the music world and then you're like, you hear about something like that and you're like, how could you not? How could you not know that you were being daft? How could you, you know, like, that's that's crazy. Well, so my my last question to you about this is you've, these have been amazing stories, but you've, is it because the, like, the situation with Dvorak's concerto and Kachaturian's concerto were so different. Is that why you wanted to record them together? Like, what what for you is the no, bridge actually, between the two? Actually, it's their similarity that really made ah. me feel like they would be a great pairing. Now, certainly they're from different countries. They're from different centuries, for goodness sakes. But both of them have... Just in, in, you know, the folk music is absolutely permeating each of their concertos. It's front and center. It's, it's yeah. um, you know, a, just a key building block of these compositions. And, you know, both being from Eastern Europe, and it, it just felt right. Um, and, of course, in my own personal history, the fact that I learned them both when I was 15, and both of them are mm-hmm. works that I frequently perform, and they're both, they're both very appealing, you know, kind of pieces that audiences love to hear, that they go out of the hall with a smile on their face. Yeah, they don't challenge you in a maybe a more thought-provoking way in the way that, you know, maybe a Shostakovich concerto makes you think about the dark side of humanity or, you know, the Brahms <laughs> concerto think, makes you think about the magnificence of creation. Um, but they're both, you know, very, very, you know, excellent works. And, um, yeah, just take you on a journey that and leave you with a smile and you know humming <laughs> the melody as you're walking out of the hall. So I just felt like they belonged together. Huh. I love that. I love that like they were born out of such totally different circumstances, but kind of wound up having all of these things in common. Well, Rachel Barton Pine, thank you so much for teaching me about this today. This has been a blast. I appreciate it. Always great to talk to you, and I look forward to meeting you soon when I perform in Seattle this spring. Oh yeah. Nice. Yeah, we got it. We got to do it up this time. I'm glad we could do it. All right, everybody, that does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to classicalclassroomshow.com where you can find all of our past episodes, ways to listen, ways to connect, ways to support the show, and don't forget to subscribe to rate and review us wherever you listen to us. Thanks to the home of Classical Classroom, King FM, where every day is like Sunday. Every day is silent and gray. Thanks to the birthplace of Classical Classroom, Houston Public Media. 
Thanks to Rachel Barton Pine for being on the show again. Rachel, we love you. You're amazing. Thanks to the official news source of Classical Classroom, my nightly dream report. Last night, it was mostly about kittens. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time. So, folks, it's been a while since we gave a shout-out to our supporters. And this is the part of the podcast where I thank all of you who have donated to the podcast by singing you a song. Uh, and because this episode was about folk music, I thought I'd do it uh, with with a folk song. So, uh, so, so here we go. Oh, I have to thank our podcast donors. Oh, I have to thank so many of you. Well, I'll thank Aaron Dent, and I'll thank Jen and Dave. And I'll thank Jose, and I'll thank Robert Goldstein. And I'll thank Richard Hubbard and Joyce Walborn, too. And I'll thank John and Megan and Laura and Christine. And let's not forget another John and Sarah also. And it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to thank all of you. But at least I tried. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. And uh, wait, oh, no. <clears throat> Thanks for listening to the podcast. And uh, sorry. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry.